Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I have the privilege of sitting down with Larry Schwedrow, Principal and Director of Research for Buckingham Strategic Wealth. Larry is author of nearly 20 investing books, a prolific writer, and is considered an expert on factor and evidence-based investing. This is a wide-ranging discussion, and Larry offers straightforward and common-sense insights that I think many investors can learn from. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Buckingham Strategic Wealth's Larry Schwedrow. Just one more thing before we start. Excess Returns has been growing a lot recently, and all of that is a result of the support from our loyal listeners and viewers. We just want to thank everyone who's taken the time to listen to us and for supporting us and allowing us to continue to reach more and more investors. If you have a minute to do it, we would ask one favor of you. If you have benefited from the podcast and could take the time to subscribe on YouTube or your preferred audio platform and to write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Both are a big part of expanding the podcast and will allow us to continue to get great guests. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hi, Larry. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be with you. You know, someone came up to me off the street and asked me who they should follow or read to learn about factor investing. At least for me, I would point them to you as being one of the first people I think that they should research and recommend and read because I personally think you have done a wonderful job educating uh, professional investors and retail investors on factor and evidence-based investing and many other important topics. Um, so we'll get into that today. But to start out, I just want you to know that you're sort of the top of the list here when it comes to factor-based investing stuff. Well, well, thank you. I want to also give a lot of credit to my co-author, Andy Birkin, who's the head of research at Bridgeway. I've learned a lot from uh, Andy. Uh, and I think between the two of us, what we bring are his intellectual capital skills. He was a world-class physicist, mathematician. So, so much of finance today is high-level math and my ability to, to tell a story and help people to understand these difficult, complex mathematical concepts and tell it in a way that's easy for them to relate. And, and that's kind of where I wanted to start with you because uh, before the interview, you we, we had, we had in, in the notes said that you had written 15 books, but actually you corrected us and you said you have written 18 books with three second editions and you're actually working on your 19th book um, at the current time. And in addition to all of that, for people that might not know, Larry posts on Alpha Architects blog. I find his stuff on advisor perspectives. I find his stuff on seeking alpha. He's obviously writing for Buckingham. So you're sort of prolific with this content. And what, what I want to ask you about that is, I mean, one, how are you able to produce so much content? And then two, where, where does that come from in you? Cause a lot of times people can't that long term uh, commitment to content creation is a lot of work. And so I'm wondering if you could just comment on that. Yeah, sort of a passion of mine. One, I had always wanted to be a teacher growing up. I wanted to teach history. I still read a lot of history. Bernard Cornwell is my favorite author. He writes historical fiction. Uh, but I figured out pretty early in life, there wasn't going to be a lot of money in teaching a history. And I had other life goals as well as teaching. So I went, my other love was finance. Uh, and so I went into that, uh, that field. And so when I joined Buckingham as their head of research, 
Uh, for me, the big issue was this. In my investment banking career, I had seen how Wall Street really exploits people and takes advantage of their lack of knowledge. I mean, I saw when we were competing, when I was at Citicorp, we would have a, an interest rate swap or ceiling product and charge a certain percent, but Goldman Sachs or somebody else will come in and you know show spreads that were 3% higher and hiding all these fees in there, taking advantage of even big institutions like SNLs who went bankrupt because they bought these badly designed products. And so when it came to individual investors, what I also learned is, is this, it's not that people get bad investment results because they're dumb. Uh, it's because they're ignorant. And I don't mean ignorant in a pejorative sense. So despite the fact that money for most people is probably the third or fourth most important thing in their lives outside of their family, their health, for some people, maybe their religion. And it's not money itself, of course, that matters, but what it could do for you, provide a good education for your children, a nice home, good retirement, allow you to travel around the world, whatever is important to you about money. And yet, unless you get an MBA in finance today, it's virtual certainty you have not even taken a single course in capital markets theory or investing. And so you're left uh, to get your knowledge, at least most people, from places like CNBC and po popular mo publications and on the internet. And none of these people typically have your interest at all. Their interest is, for example, in CNBC to get you to tune in. It's exciting, you know, like at the racetrack or a casino. And most of Wall Street firms, they want to generate high fees for believing that they could generate alpha and true outperformance. When the evidence says, while it's possible to beat the market, the odds of doing so are so low, it's not prudent to do so. And so my objective was to help investors by educating them on what the academic research says is the strategies that are most likely to allow you to achieve your financial goals, to fill that gap that the education system has failed to provide. No, that's great. And, and then, and thank you for, for doing that for such a long period of time and staying committed to it, because I think we've certainly benefited tremendously by it. I think if you read our blog posts, you know, um, we cite your research often, um, in there. So, so, so appreciate that. I wanted to, um, sort of ask you now, so at Buckingham strategic wealth, your title is head of financial and economic research. So clearly you've got the financial research aspect covered which we'll get into more of that today, but there's also the economic part of it. And so those two things sort of blend in the middle in a lot of ways, but we just wanted to sort of get your perspective on the current economic situation and what we're in today with high inflation, um, the Fed um, raising rates rapidly, employment remaining strong. And, and how do you think long-term investors should sort of think about the current economic environment? It's a great question. First of all, I was trained as an economist and I spent a large part of my career before joining Buckingham selling economic forecasts and market forecasts on interest rates, exchange rates to some of the largest companies in the world. And what I've learned uh, was this, when I got a forecast right, I would take credit, of course, for my brilliant analysis. And when I got it wrong, I would always point out to some 
un, you know, totally unforecastable, surprising event that occurred and blame it on that. Well, if you do that, you're always a genius and, or just unlucky, right? Well, the fact of the matter is, if you dig into the research, Philip Tetlock did groundbreaking work on this. There are pretty much no good forecasters, especially when it comes to economics. And so that's one of the things that here's, I, I wrote a book called Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, Playing the Winner's Game. And I pointed out a great irony. That is, if you ask people who they think is the greatest investor of all time, most people think of Warren Buffett. And yet, if you ask them how they invest, they tend not only to ignore Buffett's advice, they tend to do exactly the opposite. So he tells people, for example, never try to, you know, time the market, but if you can't resist, buy when everyone else is panicking and sell when everyone else is greedy. Yet many people are trying to jump in and out, time the market. You know, I heard Buffett quoted as he was asked about economic forecasts and he said, you know, I haven't even read or listened to an economic or market forecast in 25 years. So if he's that smart, why should you listen to him? So, so that's one thing investors should be aware of. The second thing I try to teach people is this, they need to learn the difference between information and value relevant information. So for example, if, uh, let's say uh, you're a college basketball fan and, uh, North Carolina or perennial contender the national championship is playing Southeast Dakota state. Well, you know, with almost a virtual certainty, they could play a hundred times and North Carolina will win. Does that do you any good, Justin, in terms of betting? You want to bet on North Carolina to win? I mean, I, I would think it would do you some good, but probably not. <laughs> no, it, it can't do you any good because you're not the only one who knows it. Now, if you want to bet on North Carolina to win. You know, you can go look in the newspaper or online and you'll see North Carolina is favored by 32 points, which is an unbiased estimator of the actual outcome. In fact, there was a study done on the NBA, six seasons of results and the actual average spread versus what the betting was, was less than a quarter of a point. Now, of course. Sometimes the spread is 10 and they win by two or win by 20. But if you average them, their point spread is that true unbiased estimator. And the way to think of that is stock PEs are unbiased estimators of the right price for that stock. So for example, everybody knows, for example, let's say that Microsoft is a better company than Ford Motor. But that doesn't do you any good in getting risk adjusted outperformance because everybody knows it. And Microsoft, I'm just making this up, is trading at a 30 PE and Ford is trading maybe at a seven. And that equalizes that difference in PE ratios equalizes your odds of outperforming on a risk adjusted basis. The only way you can benefit from information. Well, actually there are two ways. One, nobody else knows it. And Martha Stewart found out what happens when you trade on that type of information. Uh, or two, you somehow can interpret it better than everyone else. So I'll just leave this for your listeners. The next time you want to buy a stock, write down all the reasons why, 
and you'll list, say, 10 different reasons. Great new products, great management, great balance sheet, all these things. And then ask this question, which I guarantee nobody asks, which is, am I the only one who knows this? And of course, the smart people at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley uh, and Ray Dalio, Bridgewater, and all these high-frequency traders almost certainly know everything you know. And guess who is likely to know more than you know with the same and interpret it better because they're full-time, world-class you know, physicists and mathematicians, and they're likely to know more than you. In a zero-sum game where you're buying and there's a 90% chance the seller will be an institution on the other side, how many of you could be right in outperforming? Either the stock will outperform or underperform. Only one of you could be right. It's more likely to be the institution. So you have to think about when you, if I gave you an economic forecast, why would you care? The market's already priced in everything I told. Now, having said that, if you want to ask me, I'm happy to give you my thoughts. Well, I was going to ask you about your thoughts on inflation and whether or not you think it's likely to persist for a longer period of time, but maybe within that, let's... No, I, I, yeah, we could take that on. Here, here's what I think uh, on that subject. First of all, whenever you think about investing inflation or recession risks or others, you should always think about how that risk impacts you. So if I'm a young worker and I, you know, uh, and I've got a fixed rate mortgage, for example, on a house, I don't worry too much about inflation. Tight labor markets are going to be likely I'm going to have my wages keeping up. I've got a fixed rate mortgage, so that'll deflate the real cost of my debt. I don't worry about it. If I'm a retired individual living on more of a fixed income and I worry about my expenses rising, I've got to worry about that more. So you adapt your portfolio, not based upon necessarily your view of inflation, because the market's already telling you what it expects inflation to be. Prices for bonds reflect that. So that's not really going to help you. But your portfolio should be designed to avoid owning lots of assets that are exposed to, say, more inflation risk and own more assets that provide protection against type of risk. Okay. Having said that, I think the odds are fairly high that inflation is going to remain more persistent. Uh, so if I think about a distribution of possible outcomes with the mean being, you know, let's say 3% next year inflation rate, just to pick a number, I think more of the risk lies in the right tail because we still have an incredibly tight labor market with uh, about 1.7 jobs open for every uh, unemployed person. Uh, and unfortunately, the labor force has shrunk because of government actions during COVID. That, and we have low you know, legal immigration. So I think labor markets are gonna remain tight. That's a problem for the Fed uh, because wages are gonna go up. Second problem is that very few people are talking about is this deglobalization. Now we know globalization helped suppress inflation as we imported cheap goods and services from China and India and Walmart was then able to pass those low prices on. Well, we're now seeing the negatives of that at increased risks 
Uh, and now you're seeing a lot more onshoring at a time when labor markets are tight. So production costs are going to be higher here. Uh, labor is going to be tight. I think that's going to be the reverse side of, of globalization. So inflation will be higher there. Third problem is related to housing market. Because of NIMBY policies all around the country, not in my backyard, we have an estimated housing shortage of roughly 5 million units. And it's not going to get corrected soon because you're not going to get much new building now because you have 7% mortgage rates. Uh, so I think the, you know, when you have a combined tight labor market and a dramatic shortage of housing and housing is 40% of the CPI, you're going to see persistent inflation, not as high as we have seen medical costs are starting to moderate. Housing isn't going up 10% a year, but I doubt it's going to get anywhere near the two to 3% level, uh, that the fed is targeted. I think that's going to take several years to get down there. And I think that means the Fed is going to stay tighter longer than people expect. I'll add one other thing you didn't ask about, but this is the thing that, would, that concerns me besides all the geopolitical risks, a risk that the markets, I think, are not really maybe taking into full account is Fed's grand experiment, which they never engaged in before. The Fed engaged in massive quantitative easing, blowing up their balance sheet from two to nine trillion, buying you know hundred billion a month for years. That suppressed yields, and that increased demand and led people to speculate in risky assets because they couldn't earn anything with CDs. Now you're getting the reverse of it. A hundred billion a month is coming out of the bond markets at a time that the Fed is raising interest rates as well. That we're starting to see conditions tighten, liquidity in all markets is drying up. Stock prices are much more volatile. Bond prices move incredibly large amounts like we've almost never seen very quickly. I think there's the risk at least that that could be a, a significant part of what plays out in the next year or so and could cause maybe a, a you know, I'm tightening credit, uh, wider spreads, problems for banks, companies and liquidity, and a little deeper risk of recession. Uh, so, but I think the Fed is going to have to maintain its tighter monetary policy for longer for the three main reasons that I mentioned. So that's a risk uh, for investors to at least be considering. When, when investors look at building their portfolios, you know, they hear all the stuff you're talking about and they, they sort of have this tendency to want to change something, you know, due to inflation or due to the economy or whatever. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how do you think a long-term investor should view all this? I mean, do they, do they change absolutely nothing or, or, or are there some changes for an inflationary environment they might want to make? Well, yeah. First of all, when you develop a plan, as I said earlier, you need to take into account your unique risks. What risks are you more exposed to than the average person? And then shift your policies to address that. So like I said, if you're an older investor and might avoid longer term fixed rate, you know, nominal bonds and own more things like tips or shorter term, uh, credits. If I'm a younger investor and I've got a good safe job, you know, well, 
I don't worry about getting unemployed. I can also own more equities, et cetera. And then you want to think about, you know, uh, especially if you have economic cycle risk because you're a water worker or a construction worker, you might want to think about owning other assets that don't correspond with the economic cycle risk. There are a whole slew of assets that weren't available to the general public, uh, except through ex very expensive things like hedge funds or private equity, two and 20 fees, if not more than that, that have become available uh, because of the invention, if you will, of the interval fund structure about five years ago that allow people to invest in less liquid assets and earn a big illiquidity premium in uncorrelated assets in the same way that the Harvards and Yales and Stanford's have been doing for years. So what I do uh, is I broaden my portfolio and think much more of the way Ray Dalio and Bridgewater think more of a risk parity type portfolio directionally. So I own things like reinsurance, life settlements, drug royalties, and none of them are costing me two and 20 anymore. They're not cheap, but they're giving you access to huge illiquidity premiums uh, and unique uh, risks that don't correlate. So this year, when nominal bonds got hit at the same time, stocks got crushed, literally every one of my alternatives uh, including AQR style premium wood fund, which is a long short factor fund is up. And some of them are up 20% or more. Uh, now prior years, they were down and the markets were up, but that's why you diversify. I don't think investors can benefit from shifting, uh, strategies. So my response is you're going to sin as Cliff Asner says, by changing your strategy. You should sin a little. So what I've done in the last few years, about three years ago, I thought the Fed had made a huge error, a blunder of historic proportions by not tightening uh, when you were seeing this massive fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, housing prices running through the roof, speculation and risk assets. I mean, it, it's a repeat of the same problem that Greenspan, the error he made in the 90s and ignored the signals from the capital markets. And so I shifted my, I got rid of all of my bonds that were more than five years. I typically recommend the balanced approach, uh, four to five year average maturity. So you don't take too much reinvestment risk or too much inflation risk, but I got rid of everything more than about three years, shortened up and added more private credit that's floating rate, but very safe relatively on on the credit spectrum because it's senior secured and sponsored by private equity. Average PE under 50, historical credit losses under 25 basis points. Today, that fund, Cliff Waters uh, Middle Market Lending Fund, it's cranking out about now nine, nine and a half percent. And uh, with one and a half months of average duration uh, with a great credit history. So. That's the kind of asset I think investors could look. Making little shifts like that. I still had plenty of three-year bonds and stuff, so everything wasn't overnight. Still owned a lot of safe municipal bonds, AA, AAA, but I did make minor shifts and added more alternatives as they became available 
Um, a life settlement fund I invested as a private vehicle that became available. And five years ago, I saw we added reinsurance uh, and an alternative lending that does consumer loans as well. Yeah, you know, I, th I think that minor shift point is such an important one because, you know, we see investors all the time want to make these binary moves. So, you know, to say like, all right, I'm worried about bonds, just get rid of all the bonds. You know, I think this idea of maybe changing your duration or making these minor moves, you know, you're much less susceptible to, to making a major mistake, you know, when you do it that way versus these binary aggressive moves. Yeah, because the problem is you get out, there's never a green light that tells you it's okay to get in. Throughout this whole period, even though I thought stocks were very highly valued, at least growth stocks uh, were. Today, by the way, s small value stocks all around the world, the funds I own are trading well at PEs at seven or less. So I don't think they're overpriced, but it tells you the market thinks they're risk. But throughout this, I've maintained uh, my, I have an allocation of about 30% to equities. I used to be about 70% to safe bonds. Now today, my portfolio is more 30, 40, 30 with 40% alternatives as I've added to them to try to diversify those unique sources of risk. And my equities, by the way, are all small dollars. Yeah, so you actually touched on a couple of things I want to ask you about. First of all, you touched on the overall market valuation. We've had a little bit of a pullback this year, but you know, a lot of people talking about this is one of the most expensive markets in history, maybe you know, next to the dot, dot, dot com bubble. And I'm wondering, you know, one, do you, do you think that's true? I mean, do you think we are in one of the most expensive markets in history? And then second, you know, what should individual investors think about that? I mean, is, is there anything to do for an investor when you think you're in one of the most expensive markets of all time? Well, the first thing you should be doing is setting your investment strategy and say, how much equity risk can I take? How much can equity risk can my stomach take? How stable is my labor income? If it's stable, I can own more equity risk. And also how much equity risk do I need to take? If you already have just pick a number, $10 million and you're spending three, you know, two or 300,000 a year, why are you sitting with a lot of equity risk? You don't need to take that risk. And so I tell people to think about a utility or wealth curve. And once you have enough to enjoy your life, take those chips off the table so you can enjoy the big rocks without, you know, in your life, whatever's important to you, uh, like reading a book to my grandkids or taking a walk with my wife through the park, uh, you know, that's what's, you know, I get my uh, joy out of, including playing pickleball in my driveway. I don't need to be worrying about the markets. So that's why, you know, I have got lucky. I built and sold two businesses. I don't need to take any risks. So that's why I went over my career from hundred percent equities, sold the first business, went down to 60, sold the second business, went down to about 30. So that's your starting point, right? But then you shouldn't be adjusting. I accept I'll, I'll make this case. When you get extreme valuations, uh, you could at least consider that. So I've made a couple of changes over my last 25 years since I've been at Buckingham. The first was came in late 98. Uh, I had a more balanced portfolio. I would own some of large, some small, some large value and some small value around the globe. Then I saw valuations rise to levels that I believe were clear signs of a bubble. Now, Fama says, how you don't know a bubble until after it bursts. I don't agree. I think there are one sign that tells you with certainty there's a bubble 
And that's if the earnings yield is a is below the yield on tips. Because the earnings yield is your best estimate of future expected returns. So tips were yielding, I think if my memory's right, high threes, four percent. And the earnings yield on growth stocks was about two or two and a half. So to me, the expected returns in real terms to tips were higher than growth stocks. So I sold all my growth stocks, developed the all a value strategy. And then over time, for various reasons, I moved to all small value. So that was one big change. Uh, I think we had a similar situation right after COVID, but not, that only happened in these large growth stocks and the meme stocks. The rest of the market, if you go back to 99 as an example, when you had growth stocks trading at 40 PEs, NASDAQ, QQQ was trading, I think, at 100 PE. Value stocks were trading like at 12, which was about their historical average. So I said, you know, there's no reason to avoid value stocks. They're expected returns. Right. I was a little early, about a year and a half early, but the next eight years after March 2000 was the biggest value premium ever. Uh, I think the same thing is happening now. We had a big bubble in growth. It ended in around October of 20. And we've had massive improvement. Uh, value has massively outperformed, but it's still, and because the growth premium had gotten so big in valuations, value stocks still trading in about the 90th or higher percentile of cheapness relative to growth. So growth stocks today trading maybe around 20 PEs. That may be a bit high historically relative to where you know, interest rates are likely headed at at least a five T-bill rate, but I don't think it's outrageously high. But growth, my small value stocks, the three funds I own, for example, could look at Avantis's uh, U.S. small value, international small value, and emerging market value, or Dimensional or Bridgeway. Those are the three families I use. They're all trading at seven P's. So when you say the market is highly valued, you have to ask me which market. Certainly not highly valued in value stocks. They're trading historically very cheap, uh, even, you know, especially since interest rates are actually lower than their historical averages. But that tells you the market thinks they're risky. I want to ask you about this idea of adding to value because that, that's something I did as well. And there sort of seem to be two camps on this. One is, you know, obviously if value stocks are that cheap and you're a long-term investor, you know, you want to add money to it. The other, when we get into sort of the academic idea is, well, that's factor timing and factor timing doesn't work. So you really don't want to do that. And, and I'm wondering kind of what your take is on that. Yeah, well, again, let me, I give this example. I tell people you shouldn't try to time things, except if you get these massive, you know, dislocations in Mark. So I made two shifts. I told you one in 98 and the more recent one uh, was about two and a half years ago, getting out of all longer term bonds because I think the Fed had royally messed up. So two shifts in 25 years. So I will admit I did try to tie markets there. Uh, so far, both of them have turned out to be massively correct, although I was a little early in the first case, not early in the second one. Uh, here, what you have to think about is this. So Jack, you're a surfer and you go to the beach and you want to know if it's safe to surf. 
Well, it's easy. All you have to do is look at the lifeguard stand. If there's a green flag, it tells you it's safe. If it's red, it tells you use your brain. Don't go out today. Come back tomorrow. The next day, wait till the surf comes. Jack, is it ever safe to invest in the stock market? Never. It may look safe. You may think so, but there could be another 911 around the corner or COVID-19. Uh, you don't know what China, you know, Jinping does now in China here. You could have Iran detonating a nuclear weapon. Something blows up in the Middle East. We don't know. There's all kinds of shocks and there's never a green light. And let me, this is another example uh, that I think will really be helpful for your audience. So let's say you had that magical clear crystal ball that told you what the economy was going to do which nobody has, we could admit, right? Now you think, okay, I could perfectly time the market. So it's March of 2009, and you know the economy is headed into recession the next two quarters. Unemployment's gonna skyrocket to 10% and stay there virtually at that level for another year. Now you can't see the stock market, but if you knew that, surely you would get out of stocks, right? Well, guess what? The market went up 55% by the end of the year, another 15%. Because the market does two things. One, it's forward-looking, and it knows that if things get bad, Federal Reserve is likely to cut interest rates, government will enact tax cuts to try to get the economy going. And so it's thinking ahead and markets tend to rally. And throughout that whole period, I know many people who bailed out and never got back in because the next eight, 10 years, there was never a clear sign about the economy doing well, right? That's a problem. So if you get out, I think that's a horrible mistake, almost certainly because you have to be right twice. Best thing for you to do is not take more risks than your stomach can handle or you need to take. And two, constantly be rebalancing your portfolio. Don't wait till the end of the year. As long as it's set up boundary, I suggest a 525 rule. So maximum 5% in absolute terms or 25% of the relative uh, target. So if you have a 10% allocation to something, you don't want to wait till it goes to 15 or five. You wait, you use 25% of 10, so two and a half. You get up to 12 and a half rebalance down to seven and a half rebalance. And that protects you from bubbles. Number one, you're always selling high and buying relatively low. That's what Warren Buffett tells you to do. So you get to act like Buffett that way. Now, if conditions change, your assumptions change, like you get a more stable job or you're now older, retire, right? Well, you know, you inherited money. Now you should revisit your assumptions and then develop a new plan that you stick to. And one of the assumptions is what are expected returns? Well, today expected returns to the stock market are much higher than they were two years ago because prices have come down and bond yields are now much higher. So expected returns are higher there uh, and inflation's higher. So you got to adjust. You need a uh, what I'm saying is that a financial plan needs to be a living document that gets reviewed. I would suggest every year, look at your assumptions, 
And if something has changed in your assumptions, then you need to change your plan to adopt that. But don't change because of your forecast of the economy. I you know, virtually never do that. I did it once in the 30 years. Uh, that was because I thought the Fed made a repeat error uh, that Greenspan had made in the 90s. First one was a pure valuation play. I so if value stocks were about their historical price and growth stocks were more than double their historical averages. And I said, that can't last. Although I know bubbles could get bigger, they always eventually burst. Just one more question on value stocks before we shift to a different topic. We're, we're in a higher interest rate environment right now. We're in a higher inflation environment. And, you know, looking at it from first principles, you know, you would think in, in those types of environments, val value stocks might be better. You know, growth is longer duration. It's better with, you know, lower interest rates. In, a, in an inflationary environment, the uncertainty comes in around growth. You know, that should probably be bad for growth stocks. But I know the academic research is a little bit more mixed than that on the topic. So I'm wondering if you could maybe summarize the idea that, you know, when interest rates are high or when inflation is high, value stocks should do better. Yeah, well, uh, the logic is pretty clear is this growth stocks are longer duration assets because more of their future cash flows come further out. That's the growth value stocks are shorter duration because more of their cash flow is near. So the logic then is if you think interest rates are going up or, you know, then you want to own shorter duration assets. Unfortunately, evidence doesn't support that. There's virtually no correlation. It's a very tiny correlation. And one of the things Gene Fama taught me is this. If, you're if the data doesn't support the theory, you don't throw out the data, you throw out your theory. Uh, so that's a problem. However, when you have greater risk, then the risk premium is going to go up. And we have greater risk of inflation, greater uncertainty in the economy, right? A greater uncertainty about Fed policy, greater uncertainty about geopolitical risks now. When you have greater uncertainty, then people demand a larger risk premium. When you demand a larger risk premium, the longer duration assets are going to get hammered, right? And that's an argument for why value stocks should do better. Now, why I think value will do better is nothing really to do with duration. It's that value has gotten incredibly cheap because we were in a growth bubble. And we know we're in a growth bubble because of this. It was pure speculation why growth outperformed, nothing more. Because if you look, if you remove the change in PE ratios from the returns to growth stocks over the last decade, growth doesn't outperform at all. Virtually 100%. So it wasn't earnings growth, which you could say, well, it's a new regime. Value companies can't grow, they don't, can't earn, we're in a new era, it's all about growth. That didn't happen, right? And so it was pure speculation, which meant at some point it was likely to burst and you usually get that when the Fed starts to tighten, liquidity conditions tighten, leverage starts to get punished, uh, and now you get unwinding and now you get a series of events that one crash leads to another because all things are built on leverage and risk-taking. And now people have to meet margin calls, they sell, that drives prices lower, pushes the next person to there, what I call GMO point, when the stomach screams, get me out. 
they sell and you get cascading selling until the, you know, it eventually reaches a nader and it, the last person has panicked and sold and now prices normalize again. I think that's what we're going through now, not only with growth stocks, but with Bitcoin, uh, the whole crypto world, which I, my own personal view was a big bubble. Uh, and still has a long way to go. I want to shift and talk to about one of the topics you wrote one of your 18 books about, this idea of sustainable investing. You know, as, as a factor investor, it's sort of something I struggle with. So I wanted to kind of dive into the details around that. But before we do that, I wanted to define some of the top, some of the terms that are used, because I think a lot of investors don't really know the difference, including me, don't know the difference between a lot of these terms. So I wanted you, you know, in the book, you kind of broke it into three things, impact investing, socially responsible investing, and ESG investing. And I wonder if you could talk about the difference between those terms and what they mean. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I recruited Sam Adams to help me write the book. That's his area of expertise. Uh, so we decided to break it up to educate people and so they could make good decisions. And the first half of the book is dedicated to the history defining terms. So it all began with what you might think of, you know, either sin investing or and avoiding them. So negative screening out that you know, trinity of sin stocks, tobacco, alcohol, gambling. You could add some people at defense, pornography, things like that, uh, guns, uh, et cetera. Uh, Quakers really are uh, one of the initiators. They avoided investing in anything to do with the slave trade. We had apartheid, uh, you know, boycotts for South Africa. You could think of those, so that's socially responsible investment. Then it got expanded to go beyond this negative screening out to look at other factors that could influence companies' returns and risk-taking to include more uh, things like uh, diversity, inclusion, how do you treat your employees, governance, do you have good audits, is the board really independent and controlling uh, the, the chairman and his actions. And so that became the ESG uh, movement. And then impact investing is sort of on the spectrum between investing and philanthropy, right? So the first group we said was socially responsible investing. They don't care so much about returns. We just want to value invest and we'll get returns from the other industries willing to accept that we're going to get likely lower returns because if enough people screen out an industry, well, you don't change their earnings, but you lower their stock prices and therefore you get higher returns because you have lower prices you paid for the same earnings. And since stocks have outperformed by about two to 3% a year. So that's the facts on it. Then you added ESG and so, that's now said we care about returns also, but we want to now reward companies who behave well and penalize those who don't. And that leads to the same kind of behavior. So we're going to reward companies that have more minorities on their boards who have, you know, use top quality audit firms, uh, you know, are environmentally friendly, invest in green energy and transitions. So, but we'll screen out the bad ones. Well, if enough people do that, then the stocks that are poor perform, you know, performers uh, in terms of their ESG are going to have lower prices. 
and therefore higher expected returns. I will add one other thing here. Those companies are also more risky because they have more risk of their assets being stranded. If they don't have good environmental controls, you have more risk of an Exxon Valdez. If you don't treat your employees well, you have more risk of consumers boycotting you, right? So that does create risk. The evidence shows that good green companies have lower returns, or at least expected returns, but they also are less risky. So there's a trade-off. Impact investing says, I care about making some money, but I also have a philanthropic goal. So I'm going to invest in this company that's going to make boats for this small village in Africa so they can go out and fish and earn a living. If I get a return, that's great. And if I don't, that's okay. That's not my main objective. I want to create an impact on it. So it's closer to philanthropy. So that's the way I would define uh, those. You touch a little bit on one of the things I struggle with as a factor investor when I look at ESG is, you know, the proponents of ESG will tell me I can have my cake and I can eat it too. You know, I get an excess return while I'm also doing good. Whereas sort of as a factor investor, I'm trained to believe I should be suffering some sort of pain in order to get my excess return. So how do you think about that? Like the, the idea that, you know, you might be able to with ESG, you know, have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, well, sort of you could do that, okay? So we present, there's two chapters in the book that look at all of the evidence, and it's very clear, here's the economic theory I already walked you through, which is if enough people screen out stocks, they'll have low PEs and therefore higher returns. You don't change their earnings by not buying their stocks, right? You can change their earnings by not buying their products. That's a different story, but you don't change their earnings by not buying their stocks, okay? So the evidence says, econo or economic theory says, screening athletes to lower returns for the good green companies and higher expected returns for the brown company. Now you have a conflicting force at work here, however. Up until uh, the brain movement started around 2005, but really accelerated in 2017, Paris Accords, all of a sudden, tens of billions a month were flowing into ESG strategies. So what can happen is you get exactly what happened in the dot-com bubble and happened more recently in another bubble that we just went through with, with COVID, where so much cash flows goes into these dot-com companies, you drive their valuations up, the earnings weren't there, so... You know, they're, you know, you didn't change, you know, we're lowering the expected returns and eventually you had a crash. But in the short term, for three, four, five years, all those cash flows push prices up and you got capital gains short term, but those higher prices should have told investors lower future expected return. We had tens of billions of dollars flowing in as investors started to favor ESG going from a few percent to now ESG is maybe 40 to 50% of all money invested. That can continue only so long, but the longer it continues, the more you get higher returns to green stocks in the short term and outperformance, you have your cake and eat it too, but the worse the future looks. I, we don't know where we are in this transition, but the surveys say within the next 10 years, 15 years, maybe 75, 
money will be invested in ESG. The ESG premium is getting bigger and bigger as green stocks are getting higher valuations and the sin stocks are getting lower valuations. So you can get a premium or a greenium in the short term. The, from 2017 through 20, so much money came in that ex ante green stock should have been expected to underperform by about 3%. That's that sin premium I mentioned earlier. The highest returning industries over the last hundred years in both the UK and the US are alcohol and tobacco, right? Not high tech or healthcare, which I would bet virtually all your listeners would have chosen. But in those years, those cash flows led to green stocks outperforming by 7% when they should have underperformed by three. So there was a 10% greenium. That can continue, right? Because we're only at 50% maybe ESG and the evidence says 70% or 80% is where we'll get to. But now the greenium is getting bigger and bigger. I don't know that there's enough cash flow to get there uh, and continue to generate. Certainly the last, since around October 2021, uh, October 2020, brown stocks have started to outperform again. Uh, and so that would be my expectation. Now, how can you overcome that or at least minimize that damage? By saying, I will be a green investor, but I'm going to tilt my portfolio within those green stocks to the factors that have higher returns. So I'm going to own within the green universe, a small value momentum strategy or small value momentum and profitability strategy or a small value momentum and quality strategy. These are factors that have shown evidence of persistence of performance, uh, as we show in our book, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing. So that's how you can sort of have your cake and eat it too, go sustainable, but then tilt the portfolio. And that's exactly what Dimensionals uh, Fund, they have a sustain uh, a set of sustainable or socially responsible funds and that's what they do they screen in these factors if you will so they tilt their portfolios any investor could do that as well larry i have two more questions for you before because i know we're kind of on a tight time constraint here but um you've seen the market over a few decades and obviously there's been massive changes in the market from when you started your career obviously to the popularity and advent of mutual funds and then passive indexing and ETFs and obviously investor education that you've been in the forefront of. But like, and I know you're sort of, you know, we want to stay away from forecasts and predict predictions, but what do you think in the future for sort of the, I guess it's like investment management, financial advisory business or the future of that business what that looks like, what might change? Is it direct indexing coming online? Is it other advancements in technology? Is it advisors becoming more behavioral coaches? I mean, what's your sense of where we're going here? Yeah, when I started in the industry, I would say the vast majority of professional advisors were what I might call asset managers, and they were getting paid to manage assets. We've had a commoditization of asset management over the decades as finance was democratized 
and you had all these now systematic strategies like those of dimensional, uh, which was unique 25 years ago. Now you have dozens of firms who offers investors ways to access the academic research in lower and lower cost ETF tax efficient structures. And that's really commoditized that industry as investors gain access to. So what I, what we witness is most advisory firms, at least the small ones transitioned over time from asset management being the core of their business to now asset management is one small piece of a holistic approach to a true wealth management, uh, service where you're helping people with all of their financial issues, estate plan, taxes, insurance, setting financial goals, helping educate their children, doing life planning. Uh, you know, we run family meetings where we discuss charitable giving. What are the goals of the family? Trying to pass down your values. All of these issues. I wrote a book called Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. And we talk about all these things that investors should be considering. So you really become more of a life coach, uh, and, and everything that's related financial, helping people figure out their goals, uh, their spending strategies, withdrawal strategies, asset location strategies, what risks they could take. And as Jack noted earlier, so much of investing today is driven by or the investment results are driven by behavior that where good advisors are behavioral coaches as much as anything, preventing people from becoming their own worst enemy, which is looking at them in the mirror. Problem is I've yet to meet a stomach that makes good investment decisions. And too often investors let their stomachs drive decisions. And the way you prevent that is having a well thought out plan that anticipates that there will be virtual certainty. You're going to have bad periods like, uh, 1973-4, like 2008, like COVID. We don't know when they're going to come, what's going to cause them or how long they're going to last, but we know with almost certainly they will come and you have to have a plan that can sustain any of those types of environments. And you need to develop that kind of plan and then have the discipline to stick with it and make adaptions because you don't want to develop a plan and then say, I'm going to plan for the worst scenario, which might be a 5% probability and give up all of the good things that the other 95% can have. But you need what I call a plan B that says, if that 5% tail shows up, here are the actions I'm going to take to prevent my portfolio from blowing up, meaning you run out of money before you die. So might be moving to a lower cost living area, might be not buying a new car every three years, might be downsizing, you know, what it might be working longer, whatever it might be, you should have that in your financial plan written down. So you've thought it out and not trying to act in a panic. We like to ask all of our guests sort of a standard closing question. And actually, probably most of your answers that you've given, which have been great, could answer this question in one way or another. But based on your research and your experience in the markets, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? 
Boy, that's tough. Uh, one of uh, I, one I, I've already mentioned, which is don't confuse information with knowledge. That I find is one of the worst mistakes. But the other would be this, this, since we covered that one. Is my experience, well, let me say it this way. Every, any good financial economist knows that all risk assets, any strategy involving investing in a risky asset, will go through very long periods of poor performance. For example, there are three periods of at least 13 years with the S&P 500 underperformed totally restless treasury bill. From 29 to 43, that's 15 years, 66 to 82, 17 years, and 2000 to 12, that's 13 years. That's almost half of the last 93 years of data that we have. And yet, if you held on, you got 10% a year. But if you panicked and sold, you did. And that's a problem. Now, maybe people hold on when they think about stocks, but we know many people panic and sell. But if you don't panic and sell during that period because you're smarter than that, you've built a plan to withstand it, why do you panic and sell when value does underperform for four years? Or reinsurance has three bad years from 17 to 20. Or AQR style premium had a horrible period for three years or so because we had a five standard deviation event where value had a bigger, you know, growth had a bigger bubble than it did in the 90s. People panic and sell because they think three years is a long time when it comes to judging performance. Five years is a very long time and 10 years in eternity. That literally is nonsense. And that what that tells you is since any risk asset can and will go through long periods of underperformance, here's one other. Gold from 1980 to 2002, this supposed inflation hedge underperformed inflation by 86% over 23 years. Every risk asset you can think of goes through such periods. So what should you do about that? They all, there's only one logical thing you should do. Since you can't predict which will do well when, all the evidence says active management fails at doing that. You want to diversify, of course, as many unique sources of risk as you can identify that meet the criteria Andy Birkin and I put in our book, uh, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, meaning that it has a premium, it's persistent across economic regimes, long periods of time, pervasive around the globe across asset classes. It's robust to various definitions. So value works, whether you use PE or EBITDA or cash flow, momentum works, whatever the formation and holding periods are. It's implementable, meaning it survives transactions costs. And there are logical risk or behavioral reasons why you think the premium should persist. If it meets those criteria, then you should diversify across them so you don't run the risk of all your eggs being in, say, a beta basket. And here's the final example to make that point. 40 years, 69 through 08, both large cap and small cap growth stocks underperform the 20-year treasury bond, which is the totally riskless asset for a long-term pension plan with nominal liabilities. That's 40 years. 
where growth stocks outperform and you abandon it and then you miss out on the great returns you got after. So why would you abandon value when it underperformed for four years or reinsurance when three or a long short value, you know, long short factor strategy under, that's why we diversify, rebalance and stay the course. That's the lesson. So much valuable thoughts and insight, Clary. Thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. It's been great. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.